0: Alrighty, just very quickly, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because, hey, um, we're going to get bogged down with it, but the reason that we think this book was written to the church at Colossae was for what reason? Alright, Gnosticism. Can't really call it that because it hadn't been labeled that yet, but there was a great heresy going on in the church at Colossae, and it certainly had all the rudimentary uh, elements of, of Gnosticism, though... It really wasn't called this during that time period. And as we mentioned, the church at Colossae was probably not a very big church because the town of Colossae was not very big. Um, It was probably evangelized from people from Ephesus, uh, one of them being Epaphroditus. And, of course, that's how Paul found out about what was going on there in the church at Colossae because Paul had never visited this city before and had had done no evangelism there. But yet when he found out what was going on, In Colossae, he felt it necessary to write a letter to this particular church. Now, Roger said Gnosticism, but what is Gnosticism? Give me some basic tenets of it and why it's a a terrible heresy. The biggest thing, as you said, it's a mixture of Greek philosophy, Judaism, um, some paganism, because there's a lot of mysticism involved, a lot of stuff like that, the worshiping of stars and angels and that kind of thing. Uh, but one of the biggest problems it had was it believed that matter was totally evil and spirit was totally good and the two could never touch. And therefore, there's no way in the world that Jesus Christ could really come to this earth as a man uh, because no way in the world could totally good occupy totally bad. And in fact, God had, could have nothing to do with matter because matter was evil. And therefore, Gnosticism taught that what about this world? It was all evil, therefore, as far as its relationship to God. God could not have created this world. Because why would God? God? couldn't create something that was evil. So they came up with this whole line of intermediary gods that got close farther away from God to finally get to the point that you could have somebody that could create the world. And that's why they worshipped the stars that were other little gods up there and, and angels and that type of thing. Like I said, we don't have a whole lot of time to get into it. But... The main two things that Paul is dealing with, as far as this false teaching is concerned, is the fact that, that God is really not who he says he is, okay, as Christianity says, and that Jesus Christ was really not who he says he is. Uh, they believe that since uh, spirit, which is good, cannot occupy matter, which is bad, that when Jesus came to this earth, he really wasn't here, but he was more like a phantom. Uh, he was more like an illusion. He really did occupy a human body. In fact, as I said before, there were some Gnostics who believed that if Jesus walked across sand, you could not see his footsteps because he wasn't really there. And if that is the case, what has happened to the plan of salvation? It's, it's gotten rid of it. it. doesn't work anymore because Jesus is not a suitable propitiation for our sins. And so the Gnostics came up with this different rung system where You obtain salvation by reaching certain levels, and only uh, you could find out what these levels were if you got permission from those who were the knowing ones, and that's where the word Gnostic comes from. It means to know, and therefore uh, you had to be uh, real tight with these people, and when they felt like you were ready, they would share special knowledge with you, and you could move more up the ladder uh, towards salvation. And, of course, all of that is false. It's a heresy, as we refer to it, and so Paul thought it's very important that he write this letter to the church at Colossae. Now, one of our good brothers um, a couple of weeks ago was asking me about something, and I think it would be a good thing to, to talk about before we move on in, in the um, book. But this person asked me if this was going on at the church at Colossae, and that this heresy was eating the church up at Colossae, why in the world would Paul write him a letter? I mean, sounds like a bad church to me. Why waste your time writing to a church that's full of heretics? All right, there were faithful people there. He was trying to encourage us saw another heaven. Is that what you're going to say, Fred? Yeah, and notice what it says in verse 2 at the very beginning of it. Who is he actually writing to at the church at Colossae? He's not writing to the heretics, is he? He's writing to the saints, the holy ones... And the faithful brethren in Colossae. Okay? And here's another thing that's significant about this. In the society we live in today, as soon as some problem starts occurring in the church, some the church starts doing something somebody doesn't like, even if there's something that's unscriptural that some that somebody doesn't like, what is the typical reaction? Leave. You leave. Oh, do you see what they're doing now? I can't be any part of that. I'm out of here. What would have happened if that was the case at the church at Colossae? The heretics would have won. Paul doesn't write to the church at Colossae in the book of Colossians and say, guys, y'all need to get out of there and form your own congregation as quick as possible. In fact, it's interesting. If you read Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, when Paul writes to the seven churches of of, uh, Asia, Those churches had all kinds of problems, but not one time does he tell anybody to leave. He wrote to the church at Corinth that was dealing with some, almost every chapter is dealing with a problem in the church there. Almost every single chapter of 1 Corinthians deals with a problem at a church at Corinth. That church was messed up completely. But not one time does Paul say, well, you need to leave and go do something else. Instead, you get the impression that you need to stay there and fight and keep the Lord's church and do what you can to stay as long as you can. Obviously, there are situations when the the situation gets to the point where there's just no way you can in good conscience stay with a group of people. But my point in all this is in first century church, leaving was a last resort. Uh, Today, leaving is usually the first resort. And I think one of the reasons for that is, especially in some of our major populations, uh, there's a lot of churches people can go to. When I was preaching in Knoxville, Tennessee, there were seven churches right there in the city and about 20 in the county. And so we had members that just would rotate. They would just go from church to church. They'd be at one for a little while, then they'd come to another one. And if you wait long enough, they'll come back to see you again. They'll be a member there for a while, then they'll go off again for a while. Um, I think it was a way to keep from being too involved. But my point is, uh, and and the, the question was brought up by somebody after class Paul knows there's faithful brethren in this church, and he wants to give them ammunition, if you will, to fight the heresy, to give them the strength and encouragement to keep keeping on. Instead of abandoning ship, if you will, he wants to right the ship and make things right. And so last week we uh, got through the first uh, part of verse 2, and so let's look look at the second part of verse 2, where it says, Grace be unto you, and peace from God our father and the lord jesus christ as it says in the king james now what is significant about paul saying grace be unto you and peace for those of you who've had me in class before when we talk about the epistles all right dressing the different cultures addressing them how somebody i'll just i'll put it this way this was a very common greeting Uh, grace was the Greek form of greeting. It comes from the Greek word charis, grace, and it means wishing blessings upon a person. Uh, We sometimes will hear somebody say, uh, have a blessed day. Well, that's not exactly the same thing as the Greek word for charis, but it carried the same idea that we hope that you receive blessings during this day. And the word for peace was the Jewish form of greeting uh, that is still used today by some Jews, shalom, uh, which means peace, but it doesn't mean peace in the sense where I hope you don't have any strife in your life. It carries with it the idea of peace, that your life can be the very best it can be. That's what real peace is, when life is the very best it can be. And so, in almost all of Paul's correspondence, he always begins, as we talked about, you always tell where the, who the letter is from. We always get, wait to the end of the letter, but back in those days, you start with the letter at the beginning, who's the letter from? And then you have a greeting. And after Paul, of course, explained that this was Paul and I'm an apostle and I have an authority, you better listen to what I say, he continues on with the normal greeting. But notice how the greeting changes when it's someone who is a Christian, when it's someone who's writing to a church, instead of just writing a little letter here. He says, grace be unto you and peace from... God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's different now? When you put that on the end of it, what has happened? All right, let me put it this way. If I go up to Frankie and say, grace, Frankie, and Frankie says thank you because I'm wishing him blessings. I want him to have a blessed day. But If I go up to him and say, grace from God, Frankie, that changes everything, doesn't it? That's a that's a very special blessing to get blessings from God or grace from God. If I go up to somebody and say, peace, shalom, I want you to have a, a life that's, that is a good life. But if I say, peace from God, then you've got the peace that passeth understanding. That's a very special kind of peace. And so, um, there are some writers who think that this particular greeting... Um, grace unto you and peace unto you from either the Lord Jesus Christ or from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ was a saying that people adopted in the early church. Uh, That, you know, when you came into a congregation of the people, uh, if you lived in the world, you went to a job, and you saw somebody there in the foyer, you'd say grace and peace. But when you came to church, grace and peace from God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ. Because then it carried a whole new meaning to you you're different from the rest of the world because you have a special kind of grace, a grace that even forgives sin. You have a very special kind of peace. You're no longer at war with God anymore. And so it carries with it a, such a magnificent meaning that, that some people think that Paul even used this at the beginning of his letters because it was such a common thing to say within the church. And these brethren, of course, we knew what he was talking about. Now, <clears throat> Something that's a little interesting here, and this is a little side note, this won't be on the test, but I wanted to share it with you, especially some of you who are, um, like to get a little deeper in the word every now and then. But the King James has grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There should be some translations out there that doesn't have the Lord Jesus Christ there. The NIV doesn't have it, the English Standard Version doesn't have it. Anybody else doesn't have it? Well, here's the reason why it's not there in some of those translations, especially like the NIV and the English Standard Version. The oldest manuscripts of the book of Colossians, we have no autographs, we don't have the original letter that Paul wrote, but we got manuscripts where they make copies of it. The very oldest of them that we have record of doesn't have that in there. And in fact, NIV might have a little footnote or something about it being omitted. Okay. Of some of the newer, newer manuscripts, uh, such as the Texas Receptus that the King James uh, was translated from, has it in there. And so here's the possibility. It wasn't there in the beginning, and it was added. Um, and the reason why it was added was because of the fact this is a very common greeting. In fact, this would be the only letter that Paul ever wrote where he didn't include Jesus Christ in this greeting. And so people thought that was kind of odd, and maybe the ones who were copying the manuscripts later on thought it should have been added and thought it was omitted somehow or another. Roger, you have a question? Yeah, yeah. There's no theological problem here. It's just, an inter- like I said, this is not going to be on the test, Rogers. You don't have to worry. But it's just a little note. For example, if I was reading this and you would say, well, that's not in my Bible. I wonder what's going on there. Well, I thought I'd explain that, why it's not in there, okay? Um, it's because some of the very old manuscripts that have it in there. But the thought is um, carried carried on throughout the rest of the book of Colossians. And if this is the case where it doesn't appear and it was meant not to appear, this would be the only epistle that Paul ever wrote where it didn't appear. And a lot of people think it should be there too because of the point that he's trying to make with the connection between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, how there was a connection there because he's dealing with Gnosticism. So anyway, like I said, I just wanted to make sure... Um, you understood that. But he goes on in verse 3 and says, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now, two things I want to uh, point out here. First of all, I want you to go back to verse 2. And I want you to notice that in the beginning of this letter, he says that this grace and peace that he's wishing to the Colossian brethren comes from God our Father. Now, what would be the significance of that to the people who were in the church at Colossae? Our Father. Maybe I say a different way; it's easier to understand. Okay, I agree that's the case, but why didn't he say grace and peace from God? Why does he say God, our Father? but a special relationship that we have with God. Why do we call God our Father? All right, two different reasons. I'm going to hold two fingers up. First of all, he's our creator. God created everything. Secondly, he is the father of our salvation, and therefore, in a sense, he has begotten us through the blood of Jesus Christ, and so we have that relationship with him. Paul does this all the time in his books. You've got to look for it but there's subtle things going there where he's always attacking the problem. And so if he's dealing with Gnosticism, who believes that God didn't create the world and that salvation can't come through God the way that he has it set up, what does he go ahead and do? What does he do? He says, that's our Father. So right then, he's setting the stage for saying, this comes from our Father. Our Father is the one who created us. We have earthly fathers who created us, and so the connection is very obvious to be made. But I bring that up to make sure we understand. When we get to verse 3, he says, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's where we, we change the, what Father means just a little bit, but he's still making a very important point. Um, how is God the Father of Jesus Christ? Did he create himself? Did God create Jesus? Jesus already was in creation. You go back to the book of Genesis. The text says, let us make man in our image. Uh, Colossians 1.18 reminds us that all things were created by him and all things uh, are sustained by him. And he's talking about Jesus Christ. So in what way now is God the Father? How, How is that related? All right, so he's just called God his Father. All right, two things you need to understand here, God being used as Father when it comes to Jesus Christ. And how it would confuse you if you didn't understand this relationship is in the previous verse he talks about God being our Father, and the reason why he talks about God being our Father is because he created us, and he is the one that um, you know, takes care of us, especially when it comes to salvation. But when you talk about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, there's a little different situation here. First of all, there's a the sense that God is the one who caused Jesus to be born into this world. Um, there's the idea, of course, that the Spirit fell upon Mary when she was a virgin, and she became with child, and Jesus was born. So God was instrumental in that, but he did not create God, God I mean, create Jesus because Jesus already existed. Okay, But there is that aspect of it. And that's one of the things I think maybe Paul is trying to get the people at Colossae to think about. That you can't say that this happened the way you're saying it happened because of the way it actually happened. Um, all you have to do is open up the Gospels and you can read about how it happened. And so what they're doing is denying what the Bible said, which is a problem. And there's also the idea that Jesus being the Son... Came from the God came from God in a way that it could come from nobody else. Um, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. King James Version uses the word begotten there, and begotten almost it seems like well God begotten him or born him, but that's not the word there in the Greek. The word in Greek there for begotten is monogenes which is an unusual word, but it means a un, um, very unique one or very like no one else. And that's why mono means uh, means uh, c- singular. And then genesis is the idea of something being born. But when you put them together like that in the Greek, it's the idea of something that was so unique to nothing, like nothing else has ever been. And so Jesus is begotten of God in a way that nothing else has ever been, okay? But there also there's the idea, and Roger's touched on this too, that there's a relationship thing here. Philippians chapter 2 is where he was talking about there beginning at verse 6 and going through verse 8 or so. It talks about how that Jesus Christ, even though he was in the form of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, took of himself of no reputation and took on the form of man. Literally the idea is he emptied himself of that so he could be in a subordinate position to God. And our feeble minds... The best way for us to understand that, that the inspiration of the Holy Spirit thought we would would be able to understand is the idea of a father-son relationship. Uh, He could have used, well, general and lieutenant or sergeant and private, if you will. But that sounds kind of silly, I think. But the idea of a father taking care of a son because he took care of Jesus here on this earth and then the son... Doing the will of the Father is something we can relate to in our own family relationships. Now, have I lost everybody completely? Is everybody with me? Yeah. Well, here, here, I'll, I'll discuss that very quickly. But that, this could take a whole class. But first of all, the reason why people say that you need to pray to Father, which we should is because of the model prayer there in Matthew chapter 9, when the disciples came to Jesus and said, Te- Lord, teach us how to pray. And he said, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But, you know how the rest of it goes. And we should address the Father, obviously, because he is our creator and our, you know, the one who um, is our Father in heaven. But yet, uh, you'll be hard-pressed to say you can't preach, uh, pray to Jesus because you have Paul praying to Him all through the epistles. You have Stephen right before he died praying to Jesus. And so I know there's actually been some churches that split over that. But if you do a study of God's word, um, yes, we're supposed to address the Father. But yet by no means that doesn't mean we can't ever address Jesus Christ either. Because um, even in this text, he's saying in verse 3, we give thanks. Well, he's praying. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to go on and talk about praying to Jesus later on. Okay? Okay? But um, does that answer your question? Okay. Um, but Anyway, but I know sometimes people get really hung up on that. And I always start all my prayers saying, they're, you know, address God. But we have instances in the Bible where other people who didn't do it that way. Okay? I don't want to start any kind of trouble of understanding what the Bible says. All right. Any other questions? Okay. He goes on and... Um, the point, of course, being that he's trying to make sure here, once again, by using the word Father, he's showing a special relationship with God and the, and the Son, Jesus Christ. And he's doing this for a particular reason. Because of what he's going to say later on, he's going, he wants to go ahead and establish this connection with God and his, and his Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, as we start getting through the, the, this chapter here, he's going, he's going to make some astounding uh, facts about Jesus And it's going to turn Gnosticism on its ear. So he's setting the stage for that. So you get to verse 4. or We'll finish verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. In fact, almost this whole chapter is a prayer. So he's praying for them, and he says in verse 4, Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which we have to all the saints. He began praying for them always, since we have heard. Now, what, did, how, what does he mean, since we have heard? Well, he couldn't pray for them until he knew about them, right? And he didn't know about them until what? Epaphroditus showed up. And so as soon as he heard about the church at Colossae and what was going on there and the things that Epaphroditus had to say about it, he says, since I heard about all this that's going on down there, I'm praying for you all the time, Okay. And he says that, that when Paphroditus came to see me, he, we, he told me about your faith in Christ Jesus. Now once again, uh, he's making the point and uh, attacking Gnosticism here. They were saying that they needed to put their faith in other things. But he is saying here at the very beginning, "You're faithful brethren, the reason why I'm writing to you and called you faithful brethren before is because your faith It's not in all this garbage that's going on in there at the church. Pure faith is in Jesus Christ. And that's an important distinction he's making to them. And of the love which ye have to all the saints. So Epaphroditus got there, and I can kind of picture it like this. Paul, you won't believe what's going on in that church. Oh, man, you won't believe some of the stuff we're hearing. You won't believe some of this gobbledygook that they're getting up in in the pulpit and talking about or they're getting off in the corners and trying to recruit members into this stuff. He says, but Paul, let me tell you, there's still some brethren there. Man, their faith is as solid as a rock. They haven't given in yet. Their faith is still in Jesus Christ. And Paul says to I'm going to be praying for these people all the time now. But he goes on and he says, and Paphroditus told me about the love that you have for all the saints. Paphroditus comes to Paul and he says, Paul, you won't believe what's going on there in the church. Man, all this junk and this garbage is going on. There's some crazy people there and they're just causing all kinds of division. They're causing all kinds of trouble. But you know what, Paul? All the faithful members there, they're still showing them love. They're not talking bad about them behind their back." They're trying to treat them as much love as they can possibly treat them because they know that showing love to a person is a quicker way to their heart than is than trying to destroy them and defeat them with hatred or bad, or bad talk or that type of thing. Um, Paul says, Epaphroditus, that is so encouraging to hear that not only are they remaining true to Jesus Christ, but they're also showing the kind of love that Jesus Christ showed. And so that made an impression upon Paul and so he says, since I've heard about your faith and I've heard about your love, I, you're just in my prayers because I know the struggle that you are going in. But then he goes on in verse 5, and he, and he tells us this is the reason why they have faith and why they have love. It's because, verse 5 says, for the hope. Literally the word there is because of. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Man, time gets by in this class. All right. He says, because of the hope. What is the hope? What is our hope? All right, heaven. Let's talk about this word right here, hope. One of the things I think that most of us as Christians struggle with is that we do not fully understand the word hope as it is defined in God's word. We so commonly think of the word hope as a wish, or we think of the word hope as a maybe an opportunity. Um, but the Greek word for hope carries with it the idea of a confident expectation. It's not merely a dream. It's not merely a wish. Like I might wish that I get home that Carol fixed me country fried steak and gravy because that's one of my favorite meals. That's a wish. But if I come in the house and I smell it, that's a confident expectation I'm going to be having that tonight, right? Biblical hope is so different from the way many Christians look at it. Sometimes we look at our salvation and we... Well, somebody comes up to you, and if I was to come up to you right now and say, are you going to heaven? not saying any of you would do this, but I've seen people do this. They'll go... Well I sure do hope so. I think I will. I don't That's not the way hope is expressed in God's Word. It's a confident expectation. And if somebody comes up to you and say, Are you going to heaven and you're a Christian, you should answer back, Yes sir, yes ma'am, I'm going to heaven. And somebody might say, Well, boy, that's pretty pretty cocky of you. That's nothing to do with me whatsoever. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. We sing that song all the time, but I don't think we mean it half the time. But we need to understand, and Paul's laying the groundwork here, and he's going to doubly emphasize this here in just a minute. He is dealing with people who are trying to get Christians to give up their hope because of Gnosticism, that they no longer have salvation any longer, and that salvation is not through Jesus Christ. So he says here at the very beginning of his letter, he says the reason why these people are remaining faithful and they're showing the love they should show is because of their hope that they have. Um, Just kind of throw this out here because I think this is interesting. But somebody read 1 Peter 3.15 for me. And we hear this verse all the time, but very few people realize what it's really saying. Now, we read that verse, and typically people say, well, if somebody comes up to you and asks you about your Christianity, you need to tell them what it means to be a Christian and tell them about your church. And that's a part of it. But that's not what the verse says. You need to be ready to give answer for the hope, the confident expectation that you have. And if somebody came up to you and literally asked you, how do you know you're going to heaven? Well, a lot of people would say, well, I don't know that I am or not. I'm a Christian, and I'm doing the best that I can, I think. I mess up a lot, so I just really don't know. I hope I get in there. That's not going to convert anybody, because what's the difference between you and them? Your hope may be just a little bit better, but they're hoping something might happen good for them too. You need to explain to them why you have this confident expectation. That's the point there. You need to tell them that I'm depending upon the grace of God And the blood of Jesus Christ based upon the fact that I obeyed his commands to become a Christian and was bathed in the watery grave of baptism for the remission of those sins. And if I am faithful, I mean if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Folks, that's what my hope is based on. If it's just based on me, I've got major, major problems. But that's what the verse is talking about. Um, Somebody else read another verse for me. Read uh, Hebrews, this is another very familiar verse, Hebrews 6, 19. We sing a song about this. Okay, read the verse right before that, Mike. All right. See what he's done there? First of all, he says, God says, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, and you read that whole chapter, it talks about Jesus being in verse 8 there, or verse 5 and verse 8, Jesus Christ is the author of our eternal salvation. He goes on and lays down the case and comes to this point saying, because God cannot lie, God says, I've sent my son to die for you, and because of that you can have salvation from your sins. God can't lie, so you need to take this as a consolation and let hope be the anchor of your soul, both sure and steadfast. The anchor of Christianity, as Paul is talking about right here in the text, is our hope. Um, somebody read Titus 1-2. All right. What does our hope rest on? That God cannot lie. And he has promised to save us. Okay? Now, don't take me the wrong way and don't, and don't go around saying that a person can't fall from grace because the Bible talks about that. In fact, in just a little bit it's going to be talking about producing fruit in this verse. But yet at the same time, we go to the other extreme and think we can't have any hope. Instead, hope, in fact, hope is the main lesson of the entire Bible. All of this whole book is about hope. From the beginning there at Genesis with the fall of man until the book of Revelation, we shall overcome, is all about hope. It's the main title of the whole book. In fact, going back to the Old Testament, um, Psalms 146 and verse 5. Somebody read that for me. All right. Blessed is the man who is God. It's the same God in the Old Testament and New Testament. And what? Their hope is in that same God. If your hope is in God instead of in yourself, you're a blessed man. It changes your whole outlook on Christianity. It changes your whole outlook on worship. It changes your whole outlook on everything. You think my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Now, Paul says that. And just in case somebody didn't believe it and didn't appreciate it, look what he says next for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. He says, here's the hope. There's something waiting for you in heaven. You're going to go to heaven. And he uses a very special word here. The King James Version says, laid up. Does anybody have anything different? Stored up. Anybody have anything else? This word, this phrase here in the Greek, laid up, It carries with it the idea of stored up, as Karen says. It's literally the idea of of putting something in a box and putting it up on a shelf, and it's going to stay there. Okay? It also has the idea uh, of um, a guarantee. Uh, You could use this word sometime if, say, if you were living in Palestine and somebody sold you a chariot, uh, they would use this word to say there's a guarantee on on this chariot. That's the type of word it is. It also carries with it the idea of a surety bond. Um, I don't know if you're sure if you're what a surety bond is, but I believe some of you have handled a surety bond before because anybody's picked up a dollar bill, $10 bill, $20 bill, that is a surety bond. Folks, that's just a piece of paper that has ink on it. Now, that's not the case in the United States now because they changed the rules after Franklin Delano Roosevelt, but that piece of paper that you carry in your hand that says $20 on it, that is a surety bond based on what? The gold where? At Fort Knox. Like I said, when Franklin, uh, Roosevelt was president, that changed some because he kind of rated it and changed the value there. And we don't know how much money's there right now. But the point is, that's the type of word that we have here. But here is one of the f- favorite ways it's used in the Greek. It's, it means the word reservation or appoint, appointment. You have a reservation or appointment but it's not just the idea, where I've made a reservation and I'll make it if I keep it. or not? But to show you how this same word is used in another place in the Bible, everybody turn to Hebrews 9 and look at verse 27. You find the exact same word there. And notice how it's used there. It doesn't use the word laid up, but it uses the word in another way. 927. There you go. See that word "appointed"? That's the exact same word. What we have right here is "laid up." Now Hebrews nine twenty-seven. How sure is that when he says "just appointed unto man once to die"? I think we can pretty much take that to the bank, can't we? When it says "you're appointed once to die," well, everybody in here, unless the Lord comes back, is going to die. I don't care who you are, I don't care how old you are, I don't care how young you are, I don't care how educated you are, I don't care if you're male or female, I don't care what race you are, one of these days, you're going to die, as we've said before in the class on Ecclesiastes, as George Bernard Shaw says, a universal statistic is the same, one out of one dies. He uses that word, that exact same word, to say, this will happen. And look what he did over here in the book of Colossians. He uses that exact same word to talk about our hope and our home in heaven. Now, folks, first of all, what he's done there is he's confirmed to the church at Colossae you quit listening to these Gnostics who try to tell you that your salvation is not sure. You need to climb their ladder. You need to go to their mystical things. You need to listen to their special knowledge. Don't you worry about it. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, and he's already mentioned this several times before he even got to this point, if you're in Jesus Christ, your hope is such that it's like your place in heaven's already there. And he uses the exact same word that the writer of Hebrew uses, which may have been Paul. We don't know. When he talks about death. So here's what you got. As sure as you're going to die. Paul's making the point here. If you're in Jesus Christ. That's as sure as you're going to go to heaven. Oh and my time is up. So that's a good place to stop. Leave you with some hope.